All right. So that was a little experiment. That was a little experiment. We, we call ourselves Americans, you know? And, and like, this is the land of the free and the home of the Ten Commandments, right? Like, we put Ten Commandments in front of our courthouses. Ten Commandments are everywhere. Our entire judicial system is built on the Ten Commandments. We have Ten Commandments is like our thing as Christians, right? I mean, us and the Jews, that's pretty much like our thing, right? Well, we don't really know them. Our best was 70%, and that's the 15-year-old. And he wasn't even 100% sure about the parents' part. <laughs> so that was amazing. I'm going to remember that for the rest of my life. <laughs> we, it's, uh, it's just remarkable to me that people want to live by the law. They're, they're all about the Ten Commandments. Christians talk about the Ten Commandments all the time, and yet I really wonder if we really know what they're all about. So the next 10 weeks, guess what we're going to do? We're going to study the Ten Commandments, right? But this is, this is going to be brutal, okay? Because for the first half of, of these studies, I'm going to take my baseball bat of the Bible and I'm going to beat you senseless so that you know for a fact that this command, these commandments are far beyond your reach that you will never, ever, ever succeed in keeping these Ten Commandments. And what that will do is it will produce in you two things. Number one, it will produce humility and sympathy when dealing with other people who are breaking the Ten Commandments. Number two, it will create in you a thirst for Jesus, a thirst for his salvation. So that's the process that we're going to go through over the next 10 weeks. Trust me, it's going to be a lot more exciting and but it's going to be crazy. It's going to be a roller coaster. You're getting on board the roller coaster right now. We're ratcheting up the hill. And it's going to be some ups and downs. And it's going to be, it's going to get bad before it gets good. Let's just say that. It's going to get bad before it gets good. <clears throat> so I'm going to teach you guys today what the first commandment is. And I'm going to teach you how difficult and impossible it is to keep it. And then I'm going to teach you how wonderful the grace of Jesus is that's forgiven us and will actually enable us to keep this commandment in our daily lives. So let's go ahead and start in Exodus chapter 20. That's where we are going to be parked at today, but we're going to look at a bunch of other verses. So just keep your, your uh, finger in Exodus chapter 20, and, um, and then we'll be in the New Testament at the beginning here. But let's pray. This is called the first commandment, no other gods. So Father, we want to pray just for um, your spirit to fill us and for mercy and for grace to be upon us. Lord, we can't earn your love. We can't um, do anything to, um, to please you in this place except for trust you and believe your word. Um, we can't keep this commandment, but yet we're going to keep this commandment as a fruit of your spirit, as a wonderful work of you, you in our hearts, you're going to cause us to know and be enabled and equipped to have no other gods before you. But we pray that you teach us the depths of this and uh, walk with us through this journey, we pray. Amen. All right, so we start in, in chapter 20, 
And just verses one and two here, it says, uh, the Lord spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. So God, right away, he's saying, I, I am your God. We've already established that we're going to make an agreement here. Now I'm going to explain to you, I, I need you guys to know who I am and what I'm like. You're going to be my people and you're going to represent me and serve me in this world. And I've chosen you for this purpose. So I'm going to give you a law. He's telling the nation of Israel right now. I'm going to give you a set of rules and it's a standard to live by. It's a standard to, that they were to live by. Um, it, it's here to help you. It's here to remind you of who I am and what I require. And I already know that you can't possibly keep these Ten Commandments. You can't measure up to this standard, but uh, that doesn't make this standard disappear. It doesn't make the law go away. See, this ten, these Ten Commandments still exist today. They're still in place today. And God doesn't bend his rules because they're too hard for us. In other words, God didn't say, well, we tried the whole you keeping the rules thing and that didn't work, so we're going to scrap that plan and we're going to go with Jesus. That's not what happened. The law doesn't just disappear and go away. And God's like, you know, that was just a little too hard to expect you guys to not lie and steal and cheat and, and commit adultery. We'll just do away with it. No, 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 no. He doesn't change his standard at all. His standard is just as high. And it's way beyond our reach. But what he does do through Jesus is he enables us and equips us to meet this standard, he fulfills this law. So God says, you know, I know that uh, you're going to break this law. I, I know that's what's going to happen, but I have a plan. And that's when Jesus came along and they asked him about the law. And what did Jesus say? He said, I did not come to destroy the law, but I came to what? Fulfill it, right? His plan is to lift us up to the standard that the law sets. By simple faith in Jesus. By simple faith in Jesus. Throwing yourself upon Jesus in full dependency. That's what that looks like. Instead of me trying to measure up, let's just imagine the law as being a tape measure. Okay? Now, you and I, we are this tall. But the law's measure of how tall we should be stretches from the floor all the way up to the moon. That's all that the law is. It's a tape measure of how far you, it shows how far short you come to God's perfection. God's perfection. So tell me, when you walk around and tell people, you should keep the Ten Commandments, what are you telling them? You should grow as tall as the moon. You should be that tall. Well, they're like, yeah, but I can't. That's the point. That's the point. Okay, the law was not designed. We'll get into that in just a second. But if you guys would turn to Romans chapter 7, we're going to look at a couple of verses in Romans chapter 7 first. We're going to look at about five verses before we even get into the first commandment today because we have to set, these, uh, set up the, the theology of what we're talking about and, and understand what we're talking about before we get into the actual commandment. So in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, it says, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit 
and not in the oldness of the letter. So the number one thing we need to understand is we are not under the law if you believe in Jesus here today. It's not the system of relating to God that we use. We have a new way. And the new way is that when Jesus died, he killed our requirement to keep the law and to earn God's grace. He killed that way of thinking, that way of acting and behaving. But it wasn't so that we could just do whatever we want to do now. Oh, I'm free from the law. Let me go steal all your things. In Jesus' name. Of course not. It was so that he said, here, what did he say? So that we could serve him. So that we could serve him in the newness of the spirit. Not as a slave, but as a child willingly serves his father with all his heart, with all the soul, with all the mind, and with all the strength. God is not looking for slaves. He never says, you're my slaves. But we willingly make ourselves his slaves as his children. He says we're his children and his friends. And, uh, we, but we serve him like a slave, but we do it willingly. You know what they would do when a slave would decide to... Uh, when they, when they're, let's say they're chilling in their master's house for a few years, and then they had an opportunity to become free, but they said, I love my master. My master is amazing. I want to stay here for the rest of my life and serve you because you love me and I love you, and in this relationship, I want to be there. So what would they do? They would take them to the front of the house, and they would pierce their ear, and they were now called a bond slave, a bond servant, okay? And that's what, what we become. It's a free will thing. God says, you don't have to. But we say, oh, I'm going to. I love you. I want to serve you. Now, if you look down to verse 12 there in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, it says, therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. You see, when the law, the Ten Commandments, even though we're not under them, they're still good. The, it, it, law, the law is not the enemy of grace. It's the servant of grace. The law is a tool that we use. It doesn't hurt our relationship with God. It helps us by showing us our deepest need for Jesus, the Savior. The law is a gift from God. It's perfect. Is there anything about the law that is wrong? Did God make a mistake? Did I stutter? No. He, it was from him. He wrote it in, with his finger it was perfect, okay? No one ever, even, you go talk to people out in the world, nobody thinks the Ten Commandments is like, oh, just, that's just bunk. No, everyone's like, yeah, you probably shouldn't steal and kill and probably honor your father and mother. They don't understand the Sabbath thing. They don't understand the no other God thing. But in general, people have a pretty favorable view of the Ten Commandments. All right, so what is this gift for? What's the purpose of the law? Why is it so important for us to know it and love it? Because it is important for you to know it and love it. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, right? The beginning of 1 Timothy. So you go past the, the letters and right before Hebrews, you get to these pastoral epistles where Paul is teaching Timothy and Titus how to be pastors. And the first thing he tells Timothy in chapter 1 of his letter is what the whole deal with the law is. 
And look at what he says. So let's look at ch- chapter 1, verse 5. He says, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from sincere faith, which, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So you can summarize all the Ten Commandments in one word. Do you know what the word is? Nope. Love. Love. Love God is the first five commandments. Love others is the second five. Love God. They even came to Jesus and said, what is, the, what is the greatest commandments? And Jesus said, love God and love others. Those are the greatest commandments. On these hang all the law, he says. The law states the requirements and nothing more. The law says love, and this is what love looks like. But then it doesn't tell you how to be that person. It doesn't give you any equipment to be loving. And it certainly isn't flexible when you haven't been loving. The law shows us what love looks like. Um, If someone teaches you these laws, these rules, without telling you how to keep them, Paul says here, they don't know what they're talking about. Instead of blessing people, they are just causing or casting a curse on everyone who hears them. They're casting a curse on everyone who hears them. Look at what he says next in this First Timothy verse. But we know that the law is good, he says, if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for the murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for the manslayers, fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. I'm going to draw your attention to one word in that, and that was the word if. If. We know the law is good if. One uses it lawfully. So what are we going to do today? We're going to teach you how to use the law lawfully. I'm going to use the law the right way this morning. And that's as a baseball bat. I'm going to show you how guilty we are. And then we'll talk about the grace of Jesus after that. There's a right way to use the law and there's a wrong way to use the law. The law is a standard. The law is a description of perfect living. The law is a picture of how God would live if he ever became a man, and so the law is a picture of Jesus and how he would live. We know that because when Jesus came down, he kept the law perfectly because the law was just a written description of how he would act and behave in any situation. It wasn't hard for him. He would love. So are we antinomian? There's this big word. Everyone say antinomian. Don't you just feel like a wonderful theologian now? Okay. Antinomian simply means no law or, or against the law or we don't use the law at all. And that is not what we are. We just obey God's word and use the law the way it's designed to be used. To show us our guilt and our need for Jesus. The law doesn't make us right. 
The law doesn't change us. The law doesn't fill us. The law doesn't make us right. So we're going to study these Ten Commandments with this foundation in place. We're going to be ninjas of the law by the time we're done. And we're going to know how we're going to be able to properly use each one of these laws the way it's designed. Remember, this is a gift from God. It's a tool that we're going to use, and it's a perfect tool. It's one, think, you know, the word of God is like a sword, right? The sword of the spirit. You guys heard that? Okay. Think of a sword in this big broadsword is like a big brave heart one, Rah, right? It, one side is sharp and another side is sharp. Well, the law is one side of the sharp sword of the spirit. And there's times when you need to use this side and Wah, chop it, right? Whatever you're doing. And then the other side is going to be grace. And we're going to learn how to use both sides of the word of God, law and grace or gospel at its appropriate time. And that's, that's what is the big thing I would like us to get out of this study in the law. The law is a gift from God. It's perfect, but it doesn't change us. It can't make us keep it. It only shows us our need for a savior. It shows us how short we fall. It reveals our inner sinfulness, sinfulness and our inner broken state. It doesn't fix anyone. That is the wrong way to use the law. You can't use it to produce righteousness. It doesn't make good people or good Christians. It only shows us that we're not. Just do it is what Nike says, right? A lot of pastors teach that about the law. Just do it. You're committing adultery. Stop it. You're lying. Don't do that. You're stealing. You have other gods. You're committing adultery. You're working on Saturday. Whatever the deal is, a lot of people just say, stop doing it without ever saying how to become the person that doesn't want to do those things. Any attempt to live by the law is just imitating what you think is expected of you. And it will only lead to failure, frustration, and you will give up. Because the law is bigger than you, and it is stronger than you, and you are weak, and you will be crushed under the weight of trying to live by your best efforts. Because the law can only be fulfilled by who? Jesus. One out of... 20 billion people who have ever lived have ever kept the law in perfection. All of us broke it and break it continually. But Jesus doesn't. So God offers us a new way, a different way, and it's by new life, by faith in Jesus. God imparts his keeping of the law to you. He gives it to you. When he looks at you, he sees the life of Jesus in you. Instead of our failure, he sees the success Jesus had. But God also grants us an inner heart change that's needed to actually keep the law of our own desires. So we end up keeping these rules by nature instead of by effort. And that is what's so wonderful about God's grace. And that's the spoiler alert for what the end of this study looks like. It is a gift of pure grace. He gives it freely to all who call upon Jesus in faith. Okay? So what does the law do for a Christian? 
Some people ask, ask. That's a good question to ask. What do, how do I use the law? What does it do for me? It's a tool, but what are you saying? It shows us our need to, for Jesus. In other words, it drives us to Jesus. It's like a, a guy with a whip saying, you're awful, you stink, you are terrible, you can't keep me, ah! And we're like, get away from me! Where are you driving me? And the answer is to Jesus. It shows us what the life of Jesus looks like. It shows us what the Holy Spirit has enabled us to do. It's the way a Christian should live, but it's not the source of the life. It's the cookie cutter, but it's not the batter that makes the delicious cookies. It's the template, but it's not the garment of praise. It's the blueprint, but it's not the building God makes. It's the internet description of the car, but not the car you drive home in. That was a weird one, but it was in my head. So how are you supposed to... <laughs> the Carfax is your failure. Oh, we could go there. That's a good one. Okay. That's a good one. I'll think about that. So how are you supposed to feel when you hear the Ten Commandments? How are you supposed to feel? Feeling is very, we got to talk about feelings. It is very important for us to understand how we're supposed to feel and what feelings are. When you hear the Ten Commandments, you are supposed to feel guilty, broken, not good enough, empty. That is how God designed this whole thing to work. So it's funny that people want to put the Ten Commandments in front of everything and in their houses, all right? Yes, they're perfect, they're good, but the way you're supposed to feel is awful, like a failure. That's the design of it. And that's why Paul said to Timothy, it's not for a righteous person, because once you've come to Jesus, you are righteous. It's for all the people who are happy living in their sin. They need to feel bad. And God wants them to feel bad. Oh, but I thought God was a teddy bear that makes you feel good all the time. No, he's not. He is God. And he gave us a tool so that we don't pridefully go through our whole life feeling like we're okay when we're dying and going to hell. And he wants us so much to accept the grace and love of Jesus. And the law is part of that process. All right? So there's our introduction. We have to feel guilty if we're ever going to come to Jesus. Jesus stood up and cried out, and he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What the law does is it makes us thirsty. It helps us understand our need so that we can go to Jesus and drink. So let's get thirsty, fam. One little uh, note, if you want to think about it, there's three classes of law in the Bible. When we say law, we could mean one of three things. Number one, we could mean the, the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, okay? Number two, we could mean the ceremonial or temple law, all the things that are going to be described in the second half of the book of Exodus, which is how, to, how they did sacrifices and all the things they do in the temple, Okay, that was a very Israel-specific thing that's not applicable to our life today, except for it teaches us how Jesus works. 
And then the third is the civil or national laws that Jesus put in place, or God put in place for the nation of Israel as well. And a lot of times those are called, those last two are called the law of Moses, okay? Or the, the Levitical law for the temple. We are going to be talking mostly about the Ten Commandments during the next ten weeks, but I just wanted to make that quick uh, point to you guys. All right, so all of this, we're going to start now with the, the uh, first commandment. In verse 3 of Exodus chapter 20, God says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. What does that mean? Well, it means we're to have no other object of worship. Nothing else is supposed to be your boss. Since I am God, you can't listen to anyone else. You have to follow me. You can't follow anyone else. You can't trust anyone else. You can't obey anyone else. You can't even have confidence in anyone else, especially yourself. You must trust me, is what this means. You must obey me in everything I say. That's what a God is to a, to a man. Your life is not about you. It's about, it's mine. I own it. I am your God. I decide what you do. I decide what you think. I take responsibility for you. I am your God. I decide what you do. I decide what you say. I decide how you even think. You have surrendered all rights, period, end of story. I am God. You are my servant. This is a baseball bat flying at your heart. Over and over and over again, you, I am God, you follow only me. You wake up in the morning, your first thought is me. You come to me to ask what you do. As you know, all the people had a really hard time worshiping only one God throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, right? We, we see they would be tempted to worship other gods in the land like Baal and Ashtaroth, these are gods of sex and gods of power. And that's because when you worshiped a god, you represented and got to share with that god in its character, or you got blessings from that god is what that means. So you worship Baal, and you get to focus on wealth and power and influence. That's what he was the god of. And so he says, yeah, worship me, and then you get to, to experience power and wealth and influence you derive your meaning and identity from how much power you have and, and obtain, and you always work to get more and more, and that's how you serve me, Baal would say. And the more you have, the more your God approves of you. The more you seek power, the more power you have, the more Baal would be pleased with you. Astaroth would allow you to indulge in relationships and pleasure. And the more you did, the more he was pleased in you. So God now says, you cannot worship any of those gods. Only him. His character, as we've seen, is revealed to be holy. And so you and I, if he is our God, are, we have to be holy all the time. And holiness is what pleases God. 
Our text again says, you shall have no other gods before me. This is for, we'll go deeper. Let's go deeper down. Let's use that baseball bat a little bit more. You can't let any other gods satisfy you. You can have no other gods before me. You aren't allowed to seek what you need from another god. You need something? You ask me. And I'll give it to you if I determine to do so. I am God. You aren't even allowed to be friends with other gods. We are at war and they are my enemies, God says. You can't be their friends. Turn with me to James chapter 4. God is, this commandment is pretty all-encompassing. You can have no other gods before God. You cannot seek pleasure from any other God but Him. Look at James chapter 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yes, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Then he says these two, these two words. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is just telling us chapter 1, or commandment number 1. You shall have no other gods before me. The image Jesus puts forth here, James puts forth here, is that of a husband and a wife. Now I want you to ask, think and imagine a husband and wife happily married, and then the wife says, hey husband, can I have some money? And the husband says, why wife, I love you so much, what would you need this money for? And the wife says, I would like to go hire a male prostitute, because that would make me happy. And the husband would say, um, what? I am going to kill you. <laughs> the husband would be so devastated, so brokenhearted, right? And that's exactly what God just described here. When we say we're going to seek our pleasure, from another God, anything else except for Jesus. Jesus has to be the best thing in your life. That's this first command. Jesus has to be the only thing you care about. God is the only thing you think about and care about. That is it. That is the only way that this command is fulfilled. And he says, if you go to anything else, you are like a harlot of a wife. An adulterer, an adult. don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. It breaks his heart. You're putting yourself in a place where you are killing God's heart. This is the way we treat God when we don't keep the first commandment. So I'm holding this baseball bat. I've been beating you guys. Is there anyone that has any more hope 
left that they are okay and they don't need Jesus because we'll keep going. The command says, you shall have no other gods before me. But do you? Yes. Yes. Be warned that if you answer no, you're either uh, Jesus or you're a liar. Right now. We break this command. We trust money. We seek it. We serve it. We submit to it before we submit to God. God says, trust me alone. We trust relationships. We, we trust that they're going to give us meaning and value and satisfy our lusts instead of trusting God alone. We trust power and popularity. We seek Instagram and Facebook likes, retweets and affirming comments. We bow down to the altar of our phone daily and pay homage when God says, trust in me alone. What do you turn to when you need something? When you're sick, when you're broke, when you're stressed out, when you're homeless, when you're lonely, when you're empty, when you're sad, when you're frustrated, when you're fine, what do you turn to? The answer to that question is your idol. Because we'd like to say the Lord, but we don't all the time. Sometimes we do turn to the Lord and we're blessed in those instances, but a lot of times we turn to Medicaid or our job or our spouse or our kids. That's your idol. Whatever you choose to, your God of choice, your idol of choice is what you've just chosen. He commands us to have no other gods and we blatantly ignore him. Modern medicine is a god. Weed is a god. Sex is a god. Work is a god. TV, movie, games, all gods. Power and popularity. Psychology, Facebook, YouTube, bars and clubs, church, Bible studies, your phone, your bank, your house, your kids, your wife, your parents can all be gods. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said, in Matthew 10, 37 and 38, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy than me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Our command is you shall have no other gods before me. And if we break this command, we will be disciplined by the Lord. He removes peace from his children who decide to break this command today. Now, how does this all make you feel? God's demands, excuse me, God demands to be the center of your life. He demands to be your whole life. And as we said, the design of the law is so that you see the heights of this command. You know, sometimes there's legalistic churches. You guys ever heard of those? BK, you good? All right. No, there's, uh, there's churches out there that are legalistic, and they think they have a high view of the law, but in total reality, let me tell you the truth, they have too low of a view of the law because they think they can actually do it by trying hard. And what we want to do is as the Bible says, we want to elevate the law to such a high standard that we see 
oh my God, I am so guilty. I have broken this command daily and not even cared. I think it's fu- I've been thinking it's fine to live however I want to live. And now we're elevating the law to its proper place of this is God's standard. This is God's word. And we must elevate it that high so that we can see the next good thing, which is God's wonderful grace. The commandment brings us to a place of saying, I am guilty. I have failed. I have sinned. I have broken this command time and time again, and I will confess my sin here and now. As I was studying for this, I knew I was getting to the right place when I had to stop studying and be like, I am so guilty. That's when I knew that I had, I had, that the law had done its work in me. In me. I have filled my time with other gods. I have not been faithful and I have played the harlot with other gods. Let that confession just flow. I'm, I'm going to humble myself and confess my sin before God here and now instead of pledging new efforts or promising more, I'm going to instead trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God knew about my failure before I was made. And he, was, he, he has provided all that I need to be forgiven today. Jesus will justify us now if we ask him in faith. But more than that, he will fulfill this command inside us. He will enter your heart. He will change the very nature of it by his grace, and he will enable us to keep this command with a true heart. When we humble ourselves and confess our complete inability to keep this command, then Jesus, we can ask him to save, and he can save. But until we confess that we are guilty, he's handcuffed he can't do anything for us we're the ones that have to look at the law let the law do its work and then confess our our absolute guilt before him his response is always to supply the spiritual resources for us to actually keep this law how how does he do that is this just magic that we just say we believe in Jesus and Jesus How does this all work? Well, he makes us a new person. He kills the person we used to be, and he makes us a child of God, and that child of God has new desires. And guess what those desires look like? Jesus. They look like the child of God, the son of God. Jesus puts his spirit in us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is the last verse we're going to look at today. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, anyone know it? Creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So according to the Bible, the truth is that you are this new person as soon as you believe and receive Jesus by faith. That's the truth. What was impossible for us before is now normal and very possible for us to keep this command, to have no other gods. The law says, worship and trust God alone. 
Jesus came and fulfilled this in the way that he lived, and then he died on the cross to fulfill it on our behalf. He took our countless failures and, uh, to keep this command into his body, and he killed them. He allowed them to be killed. And the Spirit then enters our heart, and we are enabled and equipped and filled with the new heart that desires to keep his law. The enemy, he knows that all this has happened. But his only job, he can't send you to hell now and he can't do anything to harm you. So all he can do is tempt you. And what he does is he tempts us, tempts us many, many, many times to not believe that we've been given this new nature. And that's the only reason why we sin. Because he's convinced us to believe that he didn't put that part of us to death. And he uses those old feelings and those old ways that we used to trust in idols and the old way we used to rebel. And those memories are still inside us. But God says, it's not true anymore. That's not really who you are anymore. You're a child of God. Satan comes along and he throws out the bait that you need other gods. They're the only ones that are going to make you happy. You, You need that alcohol. You need that weed. You need those Facebook likes. You need to look to others to to make you feel valuable. You can't live without sex or power or drugs or status or money or car or bling or phone or friends or whatever else gives you purpose and serves as your idol or god of choice. All that's all the enemy can do. But the one way he tricks you is he makes his voice sound like yours. I want that. That thought comes into your head. Where Did that thought come as a child of God? Never. A child of God doesn't desire those things. But the enemy prompted that thought, and we're like, yeah, that's what would make me happy. Hmm. And so we indulge, and we give in. And then the Holy Spirit is like, hey, that's not who you are. Repent. Believe the gospel. Repent and believe. Believe what I've done for you, what I've made you into. It's all a lie, what the enemy does. You are a child of God, and it says right here, all things have been made new. Oh, except you were an addict. That hasn't been made new. 100% false. Jesus is the answer. Oh, but if someone's addicted to this, we need to take them through a 10-step process to really get them to... um... No. I'm going to reject all of it, and I'm going to just believe what the Bible says, that when someone comes to Christ in faith, that he makes all things new. And when the enemy comes to tempt them, they can simply say... Jesus, that died when Jesus died on the cross. And my new life is by him in faith. And all the physical dependencies will bow at the feet of Jesus Christ's glory. And it may be hard for a moment to deny those things. But as we step forward in faith, resurrection power comes into our life and the lie is shown for what it is. Just a lie. All things have been made new. You 
that part of you that was a sinner died on the cross. And you have, you live a resurrection life in the power and life of the Holy Spirit, even if you don't understand it, it's there. God's given it all to you right now, today, maybe 50 years ago when you believed. But some of us neglect to walk in it because we don't yet believe it. Some of us don't even know what God did for us, making us a child of God. Wow. It's a simple thing to repent when you've been deceived by the enemy. When you've turned aside to false gods and sinned and sinned again, it actually is pretty simple to just say, wait a second. That's not what God made me. And I'm going to believe what the Bible says, he made all things new. I'm going to believe that he has made me a child of God. I'm going to believe it instead of believing the stupid lie that I need to sin in order to control my life, in order to keep me from hurting. God never says pain is the enemy. God says sin is the enemy. I advise you to join me in repenting of our unbelief. We have not fully believed the gospel yet. We have cut short the work of the cross by succumbing to the lies of the enemy, just like Adam and Eve. Well, Eve. Just kidding. We can still seek pleasure in other gods and be satisfied by them today. And we might. But I would say no more. Not today. Not evermore. Never again will we be brought under the power of another God because we have one God. And we're going to follow him. And we're not making promises here based on our efforts. We're surrendering to what God already says is the reality of our life. That's all we're doing. People who make promises, oh, I'm going to do this for God and I'm never going to do that again. It's not, that's not the way it goes. That is pride comes before a fall. But in humility, we can believe what God says about us and say the scripture says I'm a new person and I'm going to walk in that by faith. You shall have no other gods before me is not a command that we have to try to measure up to anymore. It's the only way we know how to live in the spirit. It's a description of the life of faith that all Christians are called and equipped to live. It's what we really want. And when we have surrendered to the leading of the Holy Spirit, when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, it's the only way that we look. I have no other God besides God. How do I get this new heart and life and and this new power that you call the Holy Spirit? That is a mysterious thing. I've seen churches and it looks very weird. How do I, in this place, in this room, in Denver, Colorado, in 2018, how do I get this Holy Spirit? It's a very simple thing, guys. Just listen. One simple thing. Call out and ask. You call out to to your God who said, I am your God who has delivered you. Call and ask him. 
He's not like the gods of gold and the god of silver that never answer anything, those idols, because they're dumb in both senses of the word. He is mighty and he is wonderful and he is gracious to all who call upon him. The law speaks to us today. Have no other gods. How will you respond? Okay, I'll try harder. Or, I'm guilty. Forgive me and give me your spirit. If you ask for his spirit, God's answer is always, let me think about it. Right. The answer is never anything except yes and amen, which means so be it. But you have the power to call upon the Lord right now. You can make the free will decision, I am done walking after my own flesh. I am done breaking this law. So I'm going to call upon you in humility and faith and wait for the promise of your spirit. And I already know the answer. It's yes and amen. If you haven't been walking in the spirit, but you've been giving in to all the lies of the enemy and the desires of the flesh, it's a simple thing to repent and believe the gospel instead. That's all we're saying here. Replace the lies of the enemy with the truth of the gospel. God's power be upon you and his blessings be upon you today. Amen?